welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Witness for the Prosecution. A veteran British barrister must defend his client in a murder trial that has surprise after surprise. It's a lot. We like those. What a delightful, delicious little courtroom drama this is. A little British one. Mmm, very British, but also very twisty. Yeah. Appropriately twisty. That is not shocking given the source material at hand. Sure. Yeah, this is a case of a movie that was already set up for success because it's such a strong story already. Mm -hmm. However, I have a lot of respect for it partially because I know the trivia and partially because it's not stuffy in any form or fashion. (laughs) No, in fact, it makes fun of stuffiness, really. It really does. And I think that has a lot to do with the subject of this series. Yeah. In fact, I know it has a lot to do with the subject of the series because, you know, I've read ahead. Um, (laughs) So it was really funny. Like we were we were getting ready to record this earlier and I was like, oh, crap, I forgot I hadn't finished the notes because I got about halfway through and three different times they talked about the notice, which is at the end of the film that Mm -hmm. says if you enjoyed this film do not reveal the ending of witness for the prosecution yeah and i stopped and i'm glad i did yeah because while the twist was probably guessable to some Mm -hmm. um namely not me you (laughs) yeah i was able to figure it out and i didn't really know anything about this movie so i didn't and i was very glad i didn't Mm -hmm. granted it was not executed flawlessly no but there were some things that totally did get me okay. that I was not prepared for. Okay. And even then, the way that they turn the screw over and over and over again in this movie is quite wonderful and cheeky and just fucking fun. Yes. So the budget for this film was $2 million. That equates to about $21 million in today's money. Okay. It's a decent chunk of change. It's only really got two locations, so that makes sense. Not locations. Not locations. But like but sets, yeah. intricate sets, for sure. Yeah, but there's only really two, so. Yeah, it's just that they're immaculately designed. Sure. And then, you know, you have some very, very big names in this movie. Yeah. The box office for this film was $9 million, roughly $95 million, which for a movie of this scale and size is very good. Oh, yeah. This is the equivalent of the Oscar bait movie that, you know, makes good on an, on stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It is number six on the American Bar Association's best legal dramas, three behind My Cousin Vinny, which we talked about for our 90s series. Cool. I assume that the only reason it goes further down the list, because this is an immaculately designed form of the same sort of witness testimony stuff. Sure. Is that it's also a British film. Yeah. <laughs> or so... it's about... The British legal system. Yeah. Well, so like the same thing could just as easily happen um, here. It's just like, so like, this is great, but also like, it doesn't really apply to our legal system. Well, guess what? It's going to because none other than a gentleman named Ben Affleck is directing and starring in an upcoming remake of this movie. I'm excited for that. I want it to be set in the 50s. Uh, You know, 50s or 70s. I could see him doing 70s. If we do it now, I don't know how well it works. You're going to, but part of me is like, you have to do so many new updates if you want it to proceed in today's setting. Sure. And also, it's not going to be nearly as funny, unfortunately. Doubtful. I mean, Ben could surprise me. He could surprise me. But I don't know. The humor in this film is one of the the things that really, really makes it sing. (laughs) Yes. The film's ending was a big, big deal to producers for financial returns. We talked about already that they they kept the announcement in the final film, and that was partially because they didn't want the spoilers to ruin the financial return. Yeah, we've talked a lot of that, you know, if if you didn't know back in the olden days, you just kind of walked into the movie theater and, you know, you may have seen the end of it. And if you liked it, you kept you watched until, you know, the the film started over again until you got to the same part and then you left but this is around the time when all that stuff started changing a little bit like oh no no no, you got to go when it starts 
You've got to see the whole movie. Yeah. At preview screenings, audiences received and were asked to sign a card reading, quote, I solemnly swear I will not reveal the ending of Witness for the Prosecution. Oh, that's cute. I mean, like, this is, from everything I can tell, this is the original no fucking spoilers movie. Yeah, because this is before Psycho. Yes. <laughs> and that Psycho, that became a, the whole ad campaign. Right. Per the press book and numerous articles about the film, the principal cast did not even know the ending of the film until the final day of shooting. Oh, I like that. They were not given the last 10 pages of the script until that day. Cool. Yeah. I'm into it. And now we do that as common practice for all these TV shows and things that, you know, the actors are like, we've had to keep it under such wraps. We don't even know how this is going to happen. Yeah. Or or we've what's, what also became very common, um, you know, during the scream days, we talked about this, too, is like, oh, we're going to film like six different options and you guys won't know what it is until like you go see the film. Yeah. Which is um, cool. <laughs> the financials were so important. Uh, producers stationed guards outside the sound stages. Mm hmm. And it was rumored that producer Arthur Hornblow Jr. had the royal family sign pledges not to divulge the ending after a command performance in London. Oh, fine. <laughs> that's, that's some clout there. Now, none of this was new for, and this parlays quite well into our writing, mm -hmm. for one Agatha Christie. The same warning was used both in the stage version of Witness for the Prosecution and at the end of her other incredibly famous play, The Mousetrap. Oh, okay, cool. At the end of those performances, someone would walk out on stage and say, if you have enjoyed this show, please do not reveal the ending. Mm -hmm. So as we get into our writing, we have to talk about the originator of both the short story and the play, Witness mm -hmm. for the Prosecution, one Agatha Christie. God, she's a big fucking deal. She created the character Poirot. She created Miss Marple. She created dozens and dozens of other mysteries besides those. Mm -hmm. And she's a big fucking deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it was originally a short story called Traitor's Hands that was written in the 1920s. Okay. She then renamed it to Witness for the Prosecution and publishing in the 30s and 40s and then adapted it for stage. And it, mm -hmm. I believe, came out just a few years before the movie was made. Okay. Then we have, for the adaptation, and I kind of love this. Back in the 50s, there was this common practice of you had one guy do the adaptation, and then you had other people do the screenplay. Yes. And honestly, kind of think that's a great idea. Maybe not for everybody. Some people are really good at both. Sure. But I kind of love this idea. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, no. I, I like that divide and conquer. Like, we, we see this a little bit every now and then. Where it's like, okay, these people are going to make the story. And this person's really going to do the screenplay. And then these people are all doing, like, the punch-up dialogue. Right. So, Lawrence B. Marcus, credits-wise, this is kind of what he did. Specifically, he adapted plays for television. Okay. Um, The biggest claim to fame he has is he created the television series One Step Beyond, but... He doesn't have a whole lot of credits that are of any, like, big note. This was his thing. Okay, cool. For our screenplay, then, we have Billy, and we have a gentleman named Harry Kernett. Uh, before this, he wrote Shadow of the Thin Man, Pacific Rendezvous, The Thin Man Goes Home, Adventures of Don Juan, The Inspector General, and Silk Stockings. After this, he wrote Once More with Feeling, Hatari, a Shot in the Dark, the play developed into the Pink Panther sequel by Blake oh. Edwards, Goodbye Charlie, and How to Steal a Million. Mm. With all of this, all these people involved, what do we think of the script for this movie? It's great. It's so good. It's so good. It's definitely uh, the framework for many other things that have come since. I mean, I can just see it. I mean, like, yeah, I, I saw the twists coming because that's what I do. <laughs> That's your super special skill. Like, That's my super special skill. I can usually predict what's going to happen. Yeah. Especially if they're trying to be sneaky with me. But you still liked the twist. I liked the twist. Uh, I don't love the staging direction of the last 10 minutes. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But the, the concept, the idea, the twists involved, great. They're great. The twists are great, and the twists are not overblown. No. 
it's not some hugely dramatic reveal. And it's interesting, like seeing Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen the original. I want to at some point. Yeah. But I remember watching that and knowing like, oh, yeah, I have I do remember this reveal at yeah. some point, like ha- remembering that that's how that story ended. Sure. And I didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> because and this is something that was so good with Agatha Christie. The turn was never anything that was going to be over the top unbelievable. The turn was always something to where it was so subtle that -hmm. she could sleight of hand it under your nose. Oh, sure. That's the point. That was the whole point of her doing it. And again, we have so many times now where people try to do twists in movies and it's so ham fisted. Yeah. But the magic of a twist is that it's snuck under your radar as a moviegoer for so long that when it finally comes, you go, whoa, wait a minute. How did I not catch that? (laughs) Exactly. That's what she was so good at. And I think the really fascinating part, especially reading the trivia, is that Billy and Harry Kernitz didn't fuck with that at all. No. In fact, the story is exactly the same as the play. Okay, yeah. What Wilder and Kernitz did was open the story outside of the courtroom and bring a lot more color to the characters. Sure. The original play is set solely in the courtroom. Yeah, that makes sense. And that makes tons of sense. It's a mystery. You've got the the drama and the twists and turns, and you can get in and out for such an entertaining play. But for them, they were like, well, what if we actually had some time with the characters too? Sure. <laughs> and I think that's that's the brilliant move on their part was like, don't fuck with perfection. Yeah. Just add to it. And that's all they did. It's a really great script. This is probably, thinking about it, the best script that we've had from him that he's worked on, front to back. Pretty close to it, yeah. Like, I don't have another one here that I think is the best other than The Apartment, which is an impossible standard for any of these movies at this point. Because I think that's the that's the one time where he got absolutely everything nailed down to perfection. Agreed. Other notes about the play. The emphasis of the play was solely on Leonard Vole. Mm-hmm. Instead, they made the movie about Sir Wilfred. Okay. And kind of love it because Sir Wilfred's more interesting. Well, he has a bigger conflict. He has a personal conflict happening. It's just not, you know, courtroom business like. He's got all these other people in his ear. He has to do a good job on this. He's his health isn't great. So yeah, he's he's got some different stakes at play. So it makes his commentary on what's happening a little more interesting. I think the the sort of mind-blowingness of watching a play about a man who seems to be innocent and you're seeing it from his perspective. Sure. And then the turn is on you of the audience of he was the guy who did it all along. Yeah. Is far is super intriguing, but for a movie it doesn't work very well. Yeah, it, it's pretty basic, honestly. Like if you saw that on stage, you have so many interesting ways to do that. Mm-hmm. But you don't in a movie. Or unless you're gonna fuck around with like him being a narrator, but like Billy Billy's a dialogue guy. Billy doesn't want to do that. No, he doesn't. <laughs> that's that's not what he does. So instead, he was like, I need foils. That's why they created the character of Nurse Plimsoll. Yeah. Plimsoll is not a character in the play at all, but they added all of that comedic dialogue because they needed to have something for Sir Wilfred to have to raise the stakes for him on that level. Sure. Like, yes, he's, yes, in the play, he's dealing with the heart attack and his health. But in this, it's just like, he needs a fucking foil. <laughs> he needs another outside source yes. of, of being antagonized. And then he becomes the surrogate. Yeah. While also being adorable and super likable sure, and yeah. grumpy and crotchety in the best way. Yeah, he just doesn't want to be fussed with. He really doesn't. And like, that's, that's the the one thi- big thing they changed that I think truly cements the script apart from the play. Mm-hmm. Harry Kernitz battled with Billy Wilder because seemingly That's what everyone battled with Billy Wilder. Yep. Uh, Kernitz never worked with him again, said typical collaborators with Billy, quote, 
have a hunted look, shuffle nervously, and have been known to break into tears if a door slams anywhere in the same building. Wilder is a fiend at work. He once described Billy Wilder as two different people, quote, Mr. Hyde and Mr. Hyde, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Billy had two collaborators that he worked with for a long time, and we're Mm -hmm. about to talk about the other one. Okay. Not in this movie. Everybody else hated him. But I don't think he suffered bullshit. It sounds like he was very much a bulldog. Especially in the writer's room. Sure. And it sounds like it's not so much suffering fools as it is. We gotta get this shit done. And let's just knock it out. Or he's... (laughs) He he's it sounds like he also is one of those writers who's like, I'm I'm going to needle the other person to get a reaction to fuel them. And that's not great. No, it is interesting because like if actors either have nothing to say about him, right? Glowing things. Yeah, he's the greatest director they've ever worked with in their lives. Well, some of that is also the times if you wanted to work again, you didn't shit on a director. They were awful. Um, yeah which is fair i don't know but like even some of the most difficult people in hollywood one of them being in this movie um loved him and actors i think really loved working with him i think in a writer's room he was probably not an easy guy to deal with because he had i I think what it really came down to was wilder had a very specific idea Mm -hmm. and you were gonna have to like fight him to convince him he was wrong Yeah. Which is not great. No. But again, nine times out of ten, his instinct is right. He he is very good at his job. Agatha Christie, for her part, says this is the only movie that she liked based on one of her stories. Okay. She only revised that after seeing the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express. She allowed that one as well. Okay. Probably because she wanted them to remain faithful to the spirit of her story. And many times that's not the case with a lot of adaptations well but interestingly and and i would be curious to hear about that i wonder if it was also i liked these movies because they didn't just do my story they actually added something to it yeah they changed the experience yeah and it's like it's not that they're super faithful it's that they made this a truly entertaining film apart from what i've done before well it's also that whole thing of like letting you know the play can be its own thing and the you know the movie can be its own thing and you can like both separately that's that's not always the case with adaptation sometimes you know like especially with books well if when the movie's horrible it kind of ruins the book for you yeah that can happen so that's interesting or maybe she just got tired of british productions severely underfunding anything that was ever made of hers because that's what they did for the longest time not just her, any any British movie. The character names do have some specific meanings that we can bring up. Okay. First of all, plimsoll is both a nautical term designating the depth a ship can safely be in water and a light rubber-soled canvas shoe. Interesting. That's an interesting thought. And then there is the name Vol, and it kept like ringing to me in the funniest way. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there is the rat-like rodent known by the same name. Mm-hmm. which is a descriptor of this guy. Sure. But that is not the only meaning of vol. Vol in cards means a single player winning all the tricks of a game. So to go the vol can be venturing everything for a big reward or to try one thing after another, kind of like a series of occupations. It can also come from the French voleur, translating as a robber or thief, or in the verb to steal or fly away. Okay. So all of those leading to a very specific naming of Leonard. Interesting. There we go. All right. Now let's talk about our director. It is Billy Wilder. There is one specific thing <laughs> that Billy kind of fucked up here. Oh, yeah. <sighs> it's, it's the ending. And it's not that the ending's bad. It's just that it's rushed and it's staged really badly. And I feel like there's a swap in the line that it was needed to make it a little punchier. Essentially, when What's-Her-Face decides she's going to kill Leonard, she just kind of like goes after him and then 
he lays down and then Pimsel's like, a doctor's not going to help him. Like, it all happens in like two seconds. And it's like, unless you slashed his throat, you can't know he's dead that fast. He, he's going to be annoying for a minute. And then Sir Wilford goes, she executed him. And and then like there's business, business, business. And then they're like, come on, we have to go. We have to we have to represent her. And I feel like the way the scene should have played out was she stat like they're they're right in front of the partition for the witnesses or whatever. She should have forced him back there, stabbed him. Then you have the nurse go look at him. And then she comes out to go talk to Sir Wilford. And then when someone says somebody get a doctor, somebody get a doctor. That's when she says. Doctor's not going to help him. So, like, that's when we know that dude's about to be dead if he's not dead already now. And then I want, you know, there to be more commotion. And then Sir Wilford gets up and is like, all right, you know, we got to go. We're going to prepare for her for her defense. And the other guy's going, why? And he's like, well, she just has executed him. Okay. Because I feel like that's a better button. I have a much simpler way to fix this. Okay. And it is something that is in the film that I did not realize. Okay. I was going to save this as the button on our trivia. Mm-hmm. As Sir Wilfred watches the fight between Leonard and Christine, he messes with his monocle. Mm-hmm. It shines a light on the knife just as Christine can see it from the table. Okay. It doesn't happen enough for us to see it. Mm-hmm. If that had happened on its own, I would, I would have no problems with this. If his monocle catches that... And then he's like, what a fascinating woman. We have mm-hmm. to represent her. <laughs> I would be fine with all of this. I don't know. That one little thing gives me the whole story wrapped up. I mean, it does give me, but like they kept going. So they still need to fix it. It's, it takes a little more than that. It's Regardless, clumsy. it's clumsy. Yeah. That's, and you know, I'm going to be real honest. Lots of courtroom dramas are. <laughs> Yeah, because they don't want to go through like the business where they don't know how to summarize the business of being in a courtroom. Well, like you've your climax often comes 10 minutes before your story's able to wrap up. Yes. And lots of writers don't know how to finish it all up. So you rush it through Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's the problem. The courtroom drama always has this one big moment, Mm -hmm. but you have to write it out to the end. The verdict got the closest, probably. And even then, it was like the verdict's original ending of him walking out of the courtroom as the jury gives the the verdict. That's probably the best one to me. I know that they got pissed, but I'm like, that would be a killer ending. Yeah. I did my fucking job. I don't care. No, there's nothing left for me to do. And there are ways you can do that. It's just, this is not an uncommon problem with courtroom dramas. Sure. (laughs) However... It is surprising from Billy, who up until this point, we have had zero issues with his directing. Yeah. Despite that. Wow, it's a good directing job. (laughs) He keeps things so snappy, so on point. And I mean, there's a lot of exposition you have to get through in this this story because it's a play and like you're taking things that were probably testimony in the play Mm -hmm. and you're turning them into these sequences and flashbacks. And he got to somehow do it without losing us. And not once did I get lost. Nope. <laughs> he kept me engaged the whole fucking time. Oh, yeah. And I knew what was happening. And I knew, okay, this is, this is who this person is in this story. I won't lie. I didn't realize that was Marlena Dietrich Neither doing the I. Cockney accent. I was just about to say, I did not realize that was her. Not even a little bit. I even looked it up and I like saw like, oh, this person's playing this person. I was like, okay, so that's who it is. And it's like, oh, wait, that's not who that was. No. And we'll get to some of that was Marlena doing a really good acting job. Sure. But I mean, the way... He came up with how to stage stuff, how to film the courtroom, the whole thing. There's a whole thing with the pills about how they're arranged neatly as the testimony is going good. Sure. And then as it starts to go weird, the pills are askew. Mm -hmm. It's just down to every little detail. For this movie, again, because he adapts and everything he makes, he really tried to pay attention to the little tiny things Mm -hmm. and the very subtle clues to try to bring you to that last moment, which again is why I think it's so key and why it's frustrating that we miss. He, he does it too fast with the monocle and the knife. 
Sure. Because well, I think regardless, that's crucial. I think that's crucial. But also, I think he needed to do it more than the one other time he did it in the movie. If it's going to be that big of a deal or it, like so much of the action is going to hang on that, you got to do it more than the one time you did. Well, he did. No, he does it twice. He does it to Leonard and then he does it to Christine. Oh, yeah. He does do it to her. I Because I, yeah. I feel like, okay, he needs to do it one time to Miss uh, Plimsoll. To show that he, he, it's not just a tactic with witnesses. This is something he does. Yes, it's it's just how he gauges truth and not. Yeah, we we needed it the one more time. Yeah, regardless, it's just like it's splitting hairs in many ways. But it is facet. The the one fascinating thing for me is that this time the writing is stellar and completely on point, and it's the directing that has the one little flaw for me. Yeah, <laughs> which is just a weird thing. And that leads us to our cast. Well, cast. Now, I would want to go in order of importance here, Mm -hmm. but the credits suggest otherwise. So we are going to start with Tyrone Power playing Leonard Vole. Okay. Because he was the biggest name involved here. Interesting. Tyrone was part of a legendary acting family. Uh, Before this, he was in School for Wives, Ladies in Love, Thin Ice, Marie Antoinette in 1938, Jesse James, The Mark of Zorro in 1940, Blood and Sand, Crash Dive, The Razor's Edge, 1946, The Original Nightmare Alley. He's the big star in that. Okay, cool. The Luck of the Irish, The Black Rose, Rawhide, The Mississippi Gambler, and The Sun Also Rises. After this, he is uncredited as Solomon in Solomon and Sheba, because while filming that movie during a dueling scene, he died of a heart attack at age 44. Oh, wow. He smoked up to four packs a day and was a heavy drinker. Jesus. So that doesn't help. And in the bitterest irony ever, his last complete work was a public service announcement for television while in costume on the set of Solomon and Sheba about spotting the signs of a heart attack and having your doctor check them out. Oh, that's sad (laughs) replacing him in solomon and sheba yul brenner who also did a similarly ridiculously serious psa about smoking right before he died yeah i mean (laughs) wow that's sad it it, it was rough out there guys it's real rough all right what do we think of tyrone power in this movie he's good he's good he he really does sell himself in that he's I'm just a guy who got caught up in this. Like he does a really good job because unless you're really paying attention, you don't suspect it. Like I think he does the best job of like not coming off as duplicitous. Yeah, I n- that's the thing. I never suspected him. I kept thinking, well, it might be Christine, but that seems too easy. And I kept thinking, is it going to be like some weird shit of Miss Plimsoll or some shit like that? I mean, that'd been cool too. And that would have been great, right? But he kept throwing me off. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good acting job from him. Yeah, no, he's great. Um, I don't. I, I think he's great. Mm-hmm. I've read the Who Could Have Been Better's. I think some of the Who Could Have Been Better's would have been better. Oh, okay. What you got? One of the things about Tyrone Power was because he was already having a rough go of life mm-hmm. because of how he treated his body. He was widely regarded as looking too old for the role. And I believe this character is supposed to be much younger. I mean, it's 1957. Okay. If he was a soldier and maybe he was like an enlisted guy. Okay, but I, I that's totally fine. But next to Marlena Dietrich, she's a woman who just looks older. Like now that she looks old, she just looks like an older woman. I bet when she was 22, she looked 35. Like she's just one of those women who appears older. Y- yes and no. We'll, we'll talk about Marlena Dietrich because... Uh, Here's the thing. They looked like they were the same age to me in this film. So it didn't bother. Like, I didn't notice it. That's very fair. That's mm-hmm. very fair. All right. Let me let me throw these who could have been betters. Okay. The original choice. William, William Holden. fucking Holden. <laughs> I knew it before you said it. I mean, William Holden, because that's who you call. Yeah. Wow. He would have been really good in this. Oh, he would have been great. He could have like, killed it. Him doing the David Larrabee shtick, but also yeah. like even more earnest. Oh, yeah. And then just turning on that sarcasm. Being a dick. Yeah, no. It it wouldn't have been a great marriage of all the other things we've seen from him at this point. It would have been great. 
Of course, he was unavailable. Why? Because he was probably doing Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, yeah. That was a good movie, too. Which he's fucking great in. Which I always forget he's in. Always. So, then they went to Tyrone Power. Okay. Who is a great actor. He turned it down. Okay. So, then they considered Gene Kelly. Oh, interesting. Also, would have been great. Would have so. been great in this. Ernest Oshucks Gene Kelly suddenly doing a twist around at the end. Mm-hmm. Kirk Douglas, probably yeah. a little more convincing than Gene Kelly in this. Maybe. I, I honestly haven't seen enough of Kirk Douglas to really know what his abilities are. Jack Lemon. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> that would have been fun to see him be a dick. Yes. And that little bit of youngerness would have maybe helped out with some of the criticism. Mm-hmm. Roger Moore. Ooh, this is way back in the day, young Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. A lot of the critics wanted, I think, somebody British for this role. Yeah, that's fair. Because they didn't quite get how it makes sense. But I don't hate that he's American. No. They do a good job of explaining it and kind of working with I mean, how they are where they are. This is also the type of story, particularly because of the relationship with Marlena's character, is that it being an American is totally, totally makes sense. And I think, too, they wrote around who they cast. Sure. Which is also appropriate. There's some who could have been better for Christine, and it doesn't necessarily match a story for Marlena Dietrich. Sure. No, I, I, I like that. I mean, that's what you should do. You should cast the person that you think is going to do the best job with the character. And then you tweak those few things in the script to make that person match. Regardless, man, I, I know it wasn't possible, but God, I would have, I would have loved to see William Holden do sure. this. Yeah, I agree. Oh, man. <laughs> that That's what I think it is, is I'm just like, he's very good, mm-hmm. but I want my, my guy. <laughs> I want my guy here because yeah. it's like the perfect role for him. It's like the opposite of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. In a fun way. All right. Well, let's talk about her. We've, we've gone on long enough because next on the list is Marlena Dietrich as Marlena. Christine. Okay. An absolute legend of screen and stage. She was actually a monster star in the cabaret scene of the late 20s and early 30s in Germany mm. and then leaving before the Nazi regime invaded. Okay. So that voice was cultivated through years in the cabaret. Sure. Before this, she was in The Little Napoleon, The Tragedy of Love, The Blue Angel, Morocco, Dishonored, Shanghai Express, Desire, Destry Rides Again, Manpower, The Spoilers, The Lady is Willing, Pittsburgh, Kismet, Golden Earrings, A Foreign Affair, Stage Fright, Rancho Notorious, and Around the World in 80 Days. Mm-hmm. After this, she was in Touch of Evil and Judgment at Nuremberg. This is at the tail end of her career. Okay. So, what do we think of Marlena Dietrich in this uh, Well, this is the first time I've ever seen her. Ah. I've not seen any of those other movies. I've only ever seen her in Touch of Evil, too. She was, I mean, she was a movie star in the 30s. Sure. So, like, of course, I've heard her name. I've heard, like, the mythos about her. So, like, when the movie started, like, I hadn't paid attention to the credits. And it was like, wait, who is that? I was like, I think that's Marlena Dietrich because of the voice. The voice has, like, always been one of her big trademark things. Absolutely. And I was just like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I get to see this lady. Cool. She's fabulous. fabulous. She is. Because um, she she is not as sly with the sneaky, but that's only services the sly of Leonard's character more. It really does, which is great. Yeah, she's, it's very funny. Again, I know I've already read ahead. I've done the Mm -hmm. homework already. Yep. Her performance is honestly a byproduct of some personal choices. Okay. And some feelings because she was going through a bit of crisis about her age and her looks. Okay. She had just had plastic surgery. Okay. Okay. And wore heavy makeup and a wig for the film. Okay. She was also using tape lifts where they taped. Uh, okay. They put yeah. tape on the side of her head where the skin was to be lifted and then yeah. threaded with long threads woven into the hair on the back of her head. Yeah, we've all we've all seen these on, you know, different, you know, behind the scenes. Stuff. Yeah, it's it's an old trick. That yes. still, it works very well. The blonde wig covered it. And because of this, she couldn't move her face. Yeah. Because she wanted to keep the tape lifts in place. Yeah. I, I mean, that is one of the problems with those. If they're pulled too tight, you can't do anything. It's the same problem with Botox. If you get too much, you have no expressions. And for actresses, that's a that's like, you know, taking the tires off your car. You can't do anything. Yeah. The flip side is 
it works perfectly for Christine, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like that coldness, yeah, works one thousand percent perfectly for that character. Sure, no, no, I, I, it's fine because she's not emotionless. She's just very stoic, and which I know tends to mean no emotionless, but uh, it's it. There's a different level there. She's burying it. Yeah. Like the emotion is there, but she's very clearly burying it deep down inside until she can't anymore. And mm-hmm. then she just bursts out like yeah. nobody's business. They put her on that stand and they finally do the reveal. And then she goes through these fits and it's very convincing, except for the fact that you also go, this is way over the top for this person. Mm-hmm. And that's the clue at the end that you go, that was a performance. Yeah. Then when you see her real outburst. Yes. And how just devastated she is. Oh, yeah. No, I love when the other lady comes in. She goes, who, who is this? Who, like, the confusion that she conveys is fabulous. Like, you got one up on me. That wasn't part of the deal. And it's, it's a very Gloria Swanson moment of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Her heyday. And she wasn't a silent star. Mm-hmm. But in her heyday, her voice was so impactful. Yes. But also her face. Yeah was so impactful during her biggest run in cinema. Mm-hmm. So again, it's that whole thing of they both know how to act with their face and their body. Yes. And that's so good. It is a bit of a lost art. Yeah, sometimes. Not for everybody, but it's it's something that was absolutely required of stars it's, in their time. Yeah, it's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a fabulous actress. Again, it's a shame because I've never seen... My 30s cinema is like way gone. Mm -hmm. I know stuff from about the 50s forward. Yeah. (laughs) Dietrich later would say that Christine was the one role she felt emotionally connected to. Quote, she's not only brave, but she loves a man unconditionally. Mm. I'm going to do my best Marlena here. (laughs) Dietrich stated that Wilder was one of the three greatest directors she ever worked with. The other two being Josef von Sternberg, who did a lot of her early 30s German films, Mm -hmm. and Orson Welles, who will be making a cameo later in the trivia. Not in the Arpons. He's not in the movie. Uh, She called Wilder one of the kindest, sweetest men she'd ever known, praised him constantly, and and Wilder had mutual admiration. Quote, if we had to invent someone to be the ideal woman, we would have to invent Beatrice. And that she approached this role, quote, as if she thought her career depended on it, <laughs> unquote. Uh, other fun notes, she worked with no less than Noel Coward as a special dialogue director. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly where, but according to Elsa Lanchester, her co-star Charles Lawton taught Marlena the Cockney accent for her disguise scene. <laughs> Interesting. And she spent a long time trying on scarves, shawls, and wigs at their house to get the look right. Hmm. Um, Orson Welles also contributed by helping her create the fake nose and scar. Okay, so I was about to say, I was like, they had to have done something to her face, so she must have not been wearing like all of the the face tape and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. Because she looks like a completely different person, and that's awesome, that's great. Um, but that, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Originally, the disguise was so good that on camera, they thought she looked like a man in drag. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> and so they actually had to rein the disguise back in a little bit mm-hmm. because they were like, wow, it even looks like way further than we need it to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so they softened it, but they still kept it enough to where nobody would realize it was Marlena Dietrich. And they fucking pulled it off. I thought it was another actress. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I... I, I do, again, that had a lot to do with her and her preparation, so good on fucking you. Yeah. Dietrich also may have had a little bit of help in not needing to act so much, because apparently she had a huge crush on Tyrone Power while making this movie. Tyrone was mostly embarrassed by her advances. Okay. But uh, I believe I have heard that Marlena fell madly in love with many of her co-stars. Ah. Uh. So that is not an uncommon thing for her. <laughs> Who could have been better? Americans, like I said, writing for the star you have, both Ava Gardner and Rita Hayworth were considered for this role. Okay. Again, total goddess bombshell actresses. But Dietrich was determined, provided that Billy Wilder would direct. Mm -hmm. And 
honestly, like I don't hate the idea of somebody with those same kind of noir feelings as actresses, but the Germanness of it mm-hmm. all with Dietrich and that voice, something about it works really well as opposed to just getting like the best known starlet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, either of those women could have knocked it out of the park, but I think it would be a slightly different movie. It would be a different movie and it wouldn't have like there's a different like level of depth with Marlena. There just is. That's not to say that they couldn't do a good job. It just wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the guy we're all here for, though. Okay. The man of the hour, because holy fucking shit, I'm in love with this performance. Mm-hmm. It's Charles Lawton as Sir Wilfred Roberts. Okay. He's a big fucking deal. He was a huge stage actor as well as a screen actor. Before this, he was in The Old Dark House, The Sign of the Cross, Island of Lost Souls, The Private Life of Henry VIII, Les Miserables in 1935, Mutiny on the Bounty in 1935, Rembrandt, mm-hmm. I, Claudius, The Beachcomber, Jamaica Inn, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He played Quasimodo in 1939. Forever in a Day, The Canterville Ghost, Captain Kidd, The Man on the Eiffel Tower, Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kidd, Salome and Young Bess. After this, he did A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1959, Spartacus, and was in Advise and Consent. And also, he's done tons and tons of plays. He originated the role of the American version of Galileo, Brecht's mm-hmm. play. He's a big deal. Yeah. What do we think of Charles Lawton in this movie? He's great. He's so fun. He seems like he's having a lot of fun. He's game for all the banter. Mm-hmm. He's so snotty and grumpy. He's so the opposite of stiff upper lip, mm-hmm. which is so perfect for a movie like this. Yeah. Many directors, and again, part of this is Billy mm-hmm. and Billy writing a script that was perfect for it. But I think that's part of what's fun for somebody like Charles Lawton. Sure. He doesn't have to pretend to like respect the institution of British law. Yeah. Until it gets down to that final moral quandary that he's in. Mm -hmm. But like, he doesn't give a shit about the procedure of it all. He wants to win. And he wants to win for his client. And like, it's so the opposite of the stereotype that he gets to play. Mm -hmm. Which I think is huge for an actor who spent a whole career on the British stage. So to me... Again, I, I like what the other two are doing. They're very solid and very good actors, but I'm like, this dude, this yeah. fucking guy, <laughs> he's the most entertaining thing in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that he looks like he's having fun. Lawton was known for being incredibly difficult and moody on set while filming, mm-hmm. except in this movie. Interesting. He was delighted and committed to this role. He was like 100% invested, like deeply bringing ideas to the stage. Mm-hmm. Wilder recalled that there was one day set aside just to get reaction shots from the jury and crowd from the extras. They didn't need anybody there. The assistant director would normally read lines, mm-hmm. but Lawton was so excited to be involved in the process, he begged to come in and read all of the off-screen speeches. Oh, interesting. He read his part, the judge's part, the prosecutor's part, and Marlena Dietrich's part. Wow. So, I mean, he clearly was having a great time. I think it helps that I know his wife is also in this movie. So That, that doesn't hurt, but like, yeah. he's just loving it. Yeah. According to one of Billy's biographies, quote, it was an exhibition of craftsmanship such as Wilder had never seen. He believes that Charles Lawton had the greatest technical range and power of any actor, man or woman, whom mm-hmm. he has known. <laughs> Just the fact that he went in, he read those parts, and he read them fully in character for yeah. each one. That's great. You're like, damn, dude. <laughs> yeah, like that shouldn't be like a surprise for an actor to do that, but he's a big sh- He's a big deal. You get stand-ins to do that shit. And not only that, but he was known for being grumpy and surly Mm -hmm. in doing those things, especially in film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the fact that he was that invested was very noticeable. He modeled the character on Florence Guadella, an Englishman that was his and Marlena Dietrich's lawyer. Mm -hmm. That gentleman was famous for twirling his monocle while cross-examining witnesses. (laughs) Yeah, cute. Finally, we have 
Elsa Lanchester playing Miss Plimsoll. She was also a legend of stage and screen. Before this, she was in The Private Life of Henry VIII, The Private Life of Don Juan, David Copperfield in 1935, The Bride of Frankenstein. She is the Bride of Frankenstein. Rembrandt, The Beachcomber, Forever in a Day, Lassie Come Home, The Razor's Edge in 1946, The Secret Garden in 1949, The Inspector General, Les Miserables in 1952, Androcles and the Lion, and Hell's Half Acre. After this, she was in Bell Book and Candle, Honeymoon Hotel, Mary Poppins, she played Katie Nana, Pajama Party, That Darn Cat, Blackbeard's Ghost, Willard in 1971, Murder by Death, and Die Laughing. And she also happened to be married to Charles Lawton. <laughs> What do we yeah. think of Elsa? What do we think of Elsa Lanchester in this movie? She's great. Like she came on screen, and I was like, "Why do I know her face? Her face? I know this face. Why do I know her?" And James, <laughs> like, she was in Mary Poppins, and I'm like, <gasps> "Katie Nana." What's so shocking is that her face is also iconic because she's the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> Which, when you say that, I'm like, "Oh, of course, it's those eyes." But you know, my childhood is not Frankenstein. It's Katie Nana. It's Katie Nana. (laughs) Well, also, she's got like a short nurse haircut, little curls and a hat on this whole time. So it's not like you're seeing that whole that whole thing. But the eyes for sure. Oh, yeah. Those eyes are very specific to her. But she she doesn't look terribly different here than she did in Mary Poppins. (laughs) Also, you know, not not too big a deal. But Bride of Frankenstein was 20 years before this. So different looks. God, she's so funny. She is. She is clearly also having a lot of fun, like needling the man who is her husband. <laughs> like that's just fun. <laughs> you you can tell. And again, they made up all of that for this movie. I have to imagine they brought them in and mm-hmm. like had them write out. I know Billy doesn't do improv, but I can't imagine that they didn't like. If nothing else, they definitely cast these two because they knew the chemistry would be perfect. <laughs> sure, like they could needle each other in a way that was was appropriate but also funny and like again on stage you've got a taut enough through line that you don't need a whole lot of comic relief Mm -hmm. you can bring it in some of the cross-examination and stuff but in this movie it's such a relief and done in a way that helps break the tension at the right moment Mm -hmm. only so you can ratchet it up further they do a really good job because it allows you to let some of those bigger bombshell moments breathe mm-hmm. and also allows Lawton some time to like show yeah he's not feeling good <laughs> so she's oh, she's so fucking funny and a delightful addition to an already good movie mm-hmm. Elsa might have been a little bit of a gossip oh Marlena tried to keep all of the tape lifts and uh face work secret sure. but uh Lanchester would tell anyone who was in earshot about all of them Oh, that's, that's like not cool. However, the fun twist on this is that Charles Lawton delighted in hearing about this and then asked a makeup man to steal one of the tape lifts so he could try it for himself. That's awesome. That's funny. <laughs> like, not that a man would use them, but that he's just like, I want to see how this works. Maybe, maybe I need to do this now, too. Cool. This is very curious. Like, this, it's working for her. Why can't it work for me? I'm getting old, too. Come on, let's do this. Look, I could be annoyed by that, but also Marlena Dietrich spent, like, an entire day at their house, and they helped her create this whole disguise costume. So, sure. like, I think it worked out okay. Um, yeah, maybe maybe she revealed it more than she should have, but all right. But... Regardless, like... If they're having that much fun, I it almost feels like that was infectious in some way. Mm-hmm. Like I think everybody here just loved making this movie one That's, way or another. I always love hearing that when people are like, we had so much fun doing that project. We had a great time. Tyrone Power at one point said that he was only proud of three movies that he'd ever made. He didn't mm-hmm. specify, but they know that this is one of them. Oh, that's cool. And it's widely suspected Nightmare Alley was another one because that was a big deal for him. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about Arpons. Random people of food. We have John Williams, not that John Williams, playing <laughs> Brogan Moore. He was Thomas Fairchild, Sabrina's father in Sabrina. Yeah, I looked at him. I was like, "Isn't that the dad?" Yeah, I was like, yes, "No, it it's oh yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is." Henry Daniel playing Mayhew, the solicitor, which is a fun little twist we get in this movie. Mm-hmm. He was actually a longtime screen villain who appeared in The Great Dictator, The Philadelphia Story, and The Body Snatcher. Mm-hmm. 
Norma Varden playing Mrs. Emily Jane French. She was Frau Schmidt in The Sound of Music and Lady Featherington in Dr. Doolittle. Okay. Una O'Connor playing Janet McKenzie. She was the weird landlady Jenny Hall in 1933's The Invisible Man. Man, that lady was hilarious. She's great in this movie. She's great in this too. Like, it's the same vibe. It really is. Just with that Scottish brook. Yeah. And the hearing aid bit. Oh, the hearing aid bit's so good. So funny. Uh, she is reprising her role from the original Broadway cast. Oh, that's cool. But this was to be her final film role. She would pass away shortly thereafter. No. Philip Tong playing Inspector Hearn. He played Julia Shellhammer, the toy department boss at Macy's in Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, we love that movie. Ruta Lee playing Diana, the other woman. Uh, she played Letty, assistant to the big fashion boss in Funny Face, and was one of the seven brides for seven brothers. Oh, okay. Eddie Baker playing a courtroom spectator. He was one of the original Keystone Cops and the first secretary treasurer of the Screen Actors Guild. Okay. We're getting into some like weird people here, but yeah. Go with me. Minta Durfee, playing a courtroom spectator. She started as a chorus girl in musicals in 1908 and then married Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. They separated just before the Fatty Arbuckle scandal broke in 1921. You got to Google it. It's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. They divorced in 1925, but through that whole process, she vehemently defended him. And long story short, Fatty Arbuckle did not do anything wrong. He was wrongly accused of a Mm -hmm. lot of bad stuff. Um, she made a ton of extra money later on by appearing in small cameo roles like this one. Cool. Marjorie Eaton playing Miss O'Brien. She played Miss Persimmon, the old woman in Mary Poppins, and was the original screen emperor Palpatine in The Empire Strikes Back. She was just in heavy makeup. Mm, okay. Bill Irwin playing a juror. He is the man at the airport in Home Alone who says his wife already has a ton of earrings, little dangly ones. Mm-hmm. Franklin Farnham playing a barrister. He was the undertaker in Sunset Boulevard. Bess Flowers playing a courtroom spectator, queen of the Hollywood extra. She's been in Funny Face, Guys and Dolls, over 800 movies in her whole career. Wow. Michael Jeffers playing a cafe patron. He holds a moment in Hollywood history for shutting down all the major studios while he was the president of the Screen Extras Guild. Ooh. In 1945, they protested after extras were not getting bit parts or stunt work, but the stunt workers and bit players were getting extra work outside of their guilds. Mm. He also fought the Screen Actors Guild to ensure the extras could vote in some matters related to SAG. He wound up blacklisted for a good amount of time because of those fights, but we love that fight for the rights of extras in movies. Oh, absolutely. Everybody deserves their labor rights making this shit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, rad stuff. Awesome. Good job, dude. J. Pat O'Malley playing the shorts salesman. He was a bit player actor who did a ton of Disney voice work, including the Colonel and Jasper in 101 Dalmatians, Colonel Hothi the Elephant in The Jungle Book, and The Walrus and the Carpenter in Alice in Wonderland. Oh, okay. Bill Raish playing a bar patron. He was Fred Johnson, the one-armed man, or the bad guy on TV's The Fugitive. Norbert Schiller playing the spotlight operator in the German cafe. He was the MC for Dr. Frankenstein's show in Young Frankenstein. (laughs) More spotlight on a screen. Burt Stevens playing a courtroom spectator. He, as an uncredited extra in 489 films, was the brother of screen legend Barbara Stanwyck, who we talked about in Double Indemnity. Ben Wright, as the barrister reading the charges, he played Herr Zeller in The Sound of Music and was the voice of Grimsby in The Little Mermaid and Roger Radcliffe in 101 Dalmatians. Okay. And finally, and I didn't see him, I'd have to dig, Billy Wilder appears as a courtroom spectator in this film. Oh, yeah. He doesn't do that very often. No, that's a good place to hide, though. There's a lot of extras in this movie, though. Sure. Yeah. Awards. Awards. This film was nominated for six Academy Awards, winning none. Oh, okay. It was nominated for Best Film Editing, okay. Best Sound Recording, okay. Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Elsa Lanchester, oh, okay. Best Actor for Charles Lawton, hmm. and Best Picture. Okay. Marlena Dietrich was a thousand percent certain she would be nominated for an Oscar for this performance. Yeah, she should have been. She was devastated yeah 
she actually recorded an introduction to her Las Vegas show mentioning the nomination in anticipation of receiving it. Well, that was a mistake. You don't do that. That's when shit like that happens. That's that's how you you jinx yourself. Dallas did that. They had the they had the finals parade in 2006 and then mm-hmm. they lost the NBA finals. It's a bad idea all around. Yeah. Uh yeah. Uh she totally should have been nominated. Absolutely. Definitely for sure. deserved. Um yeah. So that's it. But hey, Charles Lawton, our guy. Oof. Yeah. All right, on to trivia. A few little trivia. pieces. In order to show just one of Marlena Dietrich's legs, an entire scene had to be written requiring 145 extras, 38 stuntmen, and $90,000, about a million dollars in today's money. Hmm. I mean, not really. It's it's also integral to the story of the movie, but it is kind of a funny idea that it was like, that's how we get to show her leg. We're, of course, talking about the, the army sequence when she has to sing the song. Okay. Some audiences confused this film for Alfred Hitchcock's The Paradine Case, and Hitchcock has said, quote, Many times people have told me how much they enjoyed Witness for the Prosecution, thinking it's my film. <laughs> Fair. People also confused The Paradine Case as a Wilder movie and not a Hitchcock movie. Uh, yeah, well, both were really good at what they did, so neither should take it as an insult. <laughs> no, I think they liked each other, actually. This actually has a Hitchcock vibe to yeah, some of it. It does. The suspense parts, it really does. The comedy bits are pure Billy Wilder. There's a whole bunch of wacky here that was like, Alfred mm-hmm. Hitchcock wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. He liked humor, but it was very dry. Sure. The courtroom setting cost $75,000. That's almost mm. $800,000 today. And was a direct recreation of an actual courtroom in London Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey. When Leonard meets Mrs. French at the movie theater, he mentions that the film is about Jesse James. Tyrone Powers played Jesse James in 1939. (laughs) Because he wasn't sure if he could convincingly act as a man with a heart condition, Charles Lawton staged a heart attack in his pool at home one day. Oh, God. Elsa Lanchester and a house guest panicked and immediately got him out of the water, at which point he explained the trick. We are not certain how Elsa reacted to that moment. Oh, man. I would have probably tried to drown him. (laughs) (laughs) I would have been so pissed. Just a joke, dear. Nope. And finally, since the film setting in 1952, there are parts of English law that have changed dramatically, which would prevent the same story from occurring. Mm-hmm. Capital punishment was abolished in 1965. The rule preventing a witness from revealing confidential communications from their spouse was abolished in 1984, which is wild to think about. Mm. But even more wild is that the rule preventing a second trial for the same offense after acquittal was abolished in 2003. Huh? Okay. Double Jeopardy doesn't exist in the UK? Interesting. Uh, let me say, this stuff comes from uh, from IMDb, so don't use that as, as legal advice, anyone. No. I'm not so sure about that one. Double Jeopardy seems pretty integral to, like, the idea of law. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that leads us to ratings. And for every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, Thermoses of Cocoa. Yes. Cocoa <laughs> oh, the bit at the end. Do you like your brandy, Sir Wilfred? No, don't don't forget your thermos of brandy. <laughs> like I've known the whole time. I'm not an idiot. Love it. <sighs> I love it. I love it so much. Uh, I'll start. Because okay. neither of us have seen this before. Mm-hmm. Four and a half. Damn it. That was what I was going to say. Well, I, there's only one problem, and it's the ending. Yeah. And it's just the way the ending is just rushed a little too much. That's it. Yeah, it is. That's really... And on this type of movie, you really have to stick the landing. You just do. Yeah. And I mean, but again, it's done such a good job up until that point. I really don't care that much. Yeah, that's fair. It's annoying, but I, it doesn't take away from me enjoying the rest of the movie. Yeah. Or, the, or what the conclusion is. Even if it wasn't done very well, mm-hmm. it still doesn't change the fact that I absolutely loved it. I just won't give it a perfect score because of that. Sure. But I mean... You know, Billy doesn't miss. Billy hasn't really missed on any of these. He's amazing. He's done a fabulous job. And this fucking movie is just even more proof positive. This is just one of the best courtroom dramas out there you can watch. It just is. So go watch it. And next up, we're going to go to another iconic film. Oh, okay. With a gentleman we absolutely adore. Mm -hmm. Another gentleman we've never talked about on this 
this show before, but he's also a very good actor. And Marilyn Monroe. Oh. Because we're going to talk about 1959's Some Like It Hot. Oh, yeah. Yes, never seen it. This is considered one of the greatest comedies ever made. Yep. And I'm lucky to have seen it beforehand just because, like, I have not only seen this movie, I have seen a musical version of this movie. Oh, okay. But it's so fucking funny. I'm really hoping it stands up. That's okay. the only concern I have about it. Okay. But I mean, I don't know. This this is a real big deal one. Sure. So all right. I'm intrigued to talk about it. Okay. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.